A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome along to Second Captains here at the Irish Times. It's more than three years now since Qatar won the rights to host the 2022 World Cup. A controversial pick for a number of reasons. Chief among them being the potential dangers of playing a major sports tournament in stifling midsummer heat. Now, there may be a little way around that one, as we've seen in recent times, but I can only assume that at that precise moment when this debate struck up, the good people who organised the Australian Open tennis discreetly drew their blinds, hunkered down in their offices, and hoped nobody would draw attention <laughs> to what goes down in Melbourne every January. Yeah, and it, but uh, no, in fairness, I think um, it has gotten a lot worse in the last couple of years, but uh, the temperatures they're playing in at the moment... It, it's pretty ridiculous. Some edited highlights, Murph, of what's been happening? Well, without going too deep into it, Frank uh, Dancevich, uh, player on the men's side of the draw, uh, collapsed during the se- second set of his match and uh, was said afterwards that he was hallucinating before he fainted and saw the cartoon character Snoopy on the court with him. Uh, Not to be confused with the rapper. So. Yeah, I was dizzy from the middle of the first set and then I saw Snoopy and I thought, wow, Snoopy. That's weird. <laughs> uh, Caroline Wozniacki placed her water bottle on the ground and the bottom of the bottle promptly melted into the court. Uh, Joe Wilfred Sanga's uh, tennis sneakers melted during his game and uh, there was an uh, arse-burning incident, incident don't in really the, on the female side go of the The point about this is, you remember with Qatar, at one point this idea was floated about an outdoor aircon system which people felt maybe the Qataris were just wealthy enough yeah. to pioneer. Well, that exists in Melbourne. It's called a roof, yep. which closes. And they finally did close it this morning on the show course, but not before making Maria Sharapova and Karen Knapp duke it out in a final set that went on for 18 games. Um, you would be glad to throw... I mean, if you're ever going to throw a game and you're just going to say, right, well... This was a, this was a, this, you remember the 1994 World Cup and how over-fussy, overly fussy the American officials were about a lot of things, one of them being letting Aldo onto the pitch, but another being the drinks. You, know, mm. you, were, you had to go over to the sideline to get one of those bags and drink it, despite the mm. ridiculous heat. This is exactly the same uh, issue that's besetting the Australian Open at the moment. The, eventually, the extreme heat policy was brought in 
today at uh, this morning, Irish time. Um, but part of the, uh, the part of the problem was that sh- uh, the show courts, the roof does close in the show courts when that happens. But it only hap- it only closes after the set you're playing finishes. So they just started or they were wet into the final set problem is a final second go on for any amount of time mm. and in this case it went on for 18 games Sharapova finishes walks out and she looks around and she goes well, why is nobody else playing in the out- outside courts here <laughs> what exactly is going on so it's pretty Being crazy flogged stuff. To, de- to death over that one rather we're going to talk route. to Matt Williams about that in a little while I always enjoy this first show on a Thursday because it is the show in which we have our weekly chat with our beloved US Murph, Brian Murphy of KMBR mm. Radio in San Francisco. Particularly looking forward to this one because the NFC and AFC Championship Games are on this Sunday and the winners will play each other in the Super Bowl. So that should be a good chat later on. Murph, how many Emmy Awards have you won? Uh, uh, oh, Emmys. Do you, yeah. do you Emmys. say Grammys or Emmys? Emmys. Okay, none. Sorry, no, Ken, I don't Emmy have any, any Emmys. Uh, yeah, no, no Emmy Awards. You sure? Yeah. Because our guest today, our final contributor, will be Jeremy Shap. Six-time Emmy Award-winning mm. Jeremy Schapp. That's That's pretty impressive. He also won the Dick Schapp Award, which is, which is an award given out uh, in memory of his own father uh, for outstanding efforts in journalism. Uh, so that's pretty good, cool, isn't it? Yeah, the guy... has a family he, dynasty, as they call it in America. Yeah, the guy, the guy comes credentialed. He's also a best-selling author. We're talking to him today about one of his books, which is a brilliant biography of Jesse Owens. He actually wrote this about, I think it came out four or five years ago, but there is a, a context. Yeah, uh, Jesse Owens' uh, gold medal from the 1936 Olympics uh, went up for auction at the end of last year. Uh, and it went for $1,466,574. Which strikes me as quite a strange Well, it would figure. stagger you, Ken. You're, you've talked before about the fact that you're not really... Memorabilia doesn't do it for you. Memorabilia, medals. Autographs. Is it about a million pounds sterling? No, it's probably more than more that. More than that, yeah. Well, no, less, think, less than that, right? Yeah, I was thinking really... I mean, it's obviously, it's a staggering amount of money. But that exact figure... I mean, if you're in a bidding war and, you know, maybe you've bid... $1,466,573. Well, it must have been a, a round number in a foreign currency That'd of some be, kind. Um, I mean, you know, maybe life isn't always that simple, Ken. Well, I don't think so, actually, because... I'm just, I'm just thinking of the Bertie Ahern principle. <laughs> you see a funny-looking entry in a bank, uh, <laughs> in a bank <laughs> statement, and you try and start to think of how it might look less weird in a different country, in yeah, a, in a yeah, different country's yeah. currency. Yeah. yeah, you're probably right there, actually, yeah. All right, let's start with US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Brian, you've got what you wanted. San Francisco 49ers into the championship game against your hated rivals, the Seattle Seahawks. But we've done a little bit of extra research over the course of the week and we've discovered that you've got some pretty close ties to Seattle yourself. Oh my goodness. You guys are do- you guys digging around the, uh, the, the family archives? <laughs> we, we have a personal investigator, Brian. Now, are you guys are you guys uh, taking President Obama's NSA uh, wiretapping <laughs> plan? Is that what you're doing? Oh yeah. my God! There's nothing. Nothing is secret anymore. Yes, it's true. I married into a Seattle family. Wow. This is almost like 
I, uh, a shout out, by the way, to the great Kalu family of T- uh, Tulla County Clare. I, I once found out that the Clare Tipperary rivalry was so fierce that my friend uh, Brian Kalu of Tulla married a Tipperary girl, and I heard that even at the wedding, on a blessed occasion as a wedding, the Clare and Tip people were, were darn near, darn near coming to blows uh, because of the rivalry. So that's kind of like me. Marrying into a Seattle family, right? But guys, the catch is this: for the I'm 46 years old. Yes, I'm 46 years old. For the first 45 years of my life, the Seahawks were irrelevant. They were nobodies. They were nothing. So these guys are total Johnny Come Latelys on the scene. They're trying to steal our glory. The 49ers are five-time world champs. The 49ers are one of the most glamorous franchises in the history of the NFL. Really, it's like Steelers, Cowboys, 49ers, Packers are like the the Mount Rushmore of great. NFL franchises. So who are these piddling Seahawks, please? So I will, I'll deal with my cousins and in-laws, uh, my in-law cousins accordingly. Brian, other than your in-laws, you seem to, I don't know, you've got a bit of a, you've got it in for the Seattle fans. What is it about the Seahawks, the team, the coach, the fans? I don't know. What is it about them that you dislike so much? So what is it? I mean, it's like, it's so, uh, I'm trying to, you know, I always like to frame things in your guys' context so you can help understand, but I'm trying to think what would be the example of this absolute Johnny come lately, nouveau riche kind of team or county or GAA team or football team or whatever that just started acting like they'd been there before. And you're like, wait a minute, where have you been? There have been and a few of them. Yeah. Most are all right. I think or, some of the Chelsea, folk are happy with Chelsea maybe in the yeah. Premier League. See? See? Yeah. You guys know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Like Liverpool and Man U have their histories, so their fan base has a certain attitude because they have a history, right? And here comes Chelsea with money. Boom, all of a sudden they're on the scene and they're in everybody's face, right? So that's the Seahawks, and they have, in all honesty, I would say, if I had to explain the Seahawks 49ers rivalry to the Irish or the Europeans there, is it's a a fight picked by them. And I'm not saying that in in an insulting way. I'm saying that the truth of the matter is that they, Seattle and their fans, sort of resent and hate the 49ers and San Francisco more than vice versa. And I'm not just pointing a finger at them. I would say the same is true in baseball in America, that the Giants and San Francisco hate L.A. and the Dodgers more than the Dodgers and L.A. hate us. And it's kind of the same deal because they had tons of success winning World Series in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and the Giants did nothing until 2010 and 2012. And I think Dodger fans kind of been like, where have you guys been for 50 years? You never won one. And so they're very, they often say to us, you guys are just pathetic. You hate us more than we hate you. And to truth told, they're probably right. I have to admit that as a Giant fan. I think that the reverse is true in the 49ers-Seahawks. The 49ers have been cruising along. We've had our rivalries with the Cowboys, tremendous rivalries with the Cowboys. We've had our rivalries with the Packers, tremendous rivalries with the Packers. The Seahawks is like, where'd you come from? But it got, it got nasty in a hurry. It got good in a hurry. And this is already one of the most anticipated games in, really in, the, in, in 49ers history. I'd put this as a top 10 most anticipated game. Brian, I have to say, I was watching the 49ers at the weekend and you give out a little bit there about Seattle's attitude, but the 49ers players spent more time mouthing off at the opposition than concentrating on what they were doing themselves. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, one of the things about the 49ers under Jim Harbaugh is they have become sort of a hateable team. 
Um, now, in fairness, I would say that the Carolina Panthers were matching them mouth for mouth yeah, and gesture true, yeah. for gesture. It was a, definitely one of those it takes two to tango days where both teams, I thought, were really pushing the edge of uh, acceptable behavior in the NFL. Yeah, and it, guys, actually, yeah, What's it going to be like on Sunday? Because the Seahawks well, are even go. more yeah. mouthy than the Panthers are. And, guys, it becomes part of the strategy of baiting. You know, here's where we, I hate to concentrate on officials. I've never liked to be one of these guys who likes to blame the refs. I'm a big believer in, like, man, the refs are going to make some calls your way. They're going to make other calls against you. You just got to play the game and don't whine about the refs. And I'm just saying, I'm not whining about the refs in advance. I'm saying they're actually going to be important in a game like this because of what they call the personal foul or the unsportsmanlike conduct, which is a judgment call a lot of times as to when you throw that flag. It's not like, you know, a hold is a hold or an offside is an offside. But a personal foul for unsportsmanlike conduct is often when the ref decides, eh, I've seen enough of that. And that can be a game changer. That can be a 15-yarder that either kills a drive if you're driving or maybe the 49ers benefited from those at Carolina. They got a few huge calls in their favor. And I would say that the Seattle Seahawks and their very loose coach, Pete Carroll, who ran a loose ship at USC when they were so good, he, you know, they are so good, they cheated and now they're on probation, and they, they were fostered an attitude of really aggressively getting in other people's face. Pete Carroll cues that up. He's one of those guys, and he's going to want to bait Jim Harbaugh's emotional crew. I love Jim Harbaugh as a coach. I would say the one thing I would say is he has shown in a couple of big games that he can lose his cool – I don't know if you guys saw in Carolina, he damn near ran halfway on the field after one play and got a 15-yard penalty for it. Inexcusable for an NFL head coach. I mean, we come from Bill Walsh and George Seifert. Guys would never do that in 49er history. So I would think Carroll and the Seahawks would try to prey on that with the 49ers and bait the 49ers, and then it becomes the official's decision when to throw the flag. That, to me, is a huge subplot in this game. The AFC Championship game, Brian, I'm sure there are lots of subplots, but the chief plot is... It lies in the two quarterbacks here. We've got Peyton Manning up against Tom Brady. I should mention at this point, by the way, that last week you got four out of four in your predictions. And earlier in the year, we did actually chat to you. I know you're, you're very humble about that, but I didn't want to bring it up. Please, I, I'd actually, Owen, oh, I prefer that you not mention that. Please. Earlier, <laughs> just to embarrass you further, earlier in the year we spoke to you about, uh, or it would have been last year, about Manning and Brady. And you said at that time, well, you know, these guys will probably meet again later on this season. They're doing it. They're in the playoffs. Am I right in saying that? In terms of legacy, which is such a big deal in American sport and all sport, really, Peyton Manning needs to win this game a lot more than Tom Brady does? Uh, Yes. I think the short answer is yes. The long answer is, like, how fair is that to Peyton Manning? You know, how much should we judge a guy for whether or not he took a 53-man team to a championship? And it's like, man, this is... We've talked about this a number of occasions through the years of how how much a, a quarterback gets credit and and criticism disproportionately. And it's just the way it is. I mean, heck, I'm a, I'm a Colin Kaepernick supporter, and I've run up against Kaepernick uh, haters. Even among our fan base, they, they still are uneasy with the way he unseated Alex Smith. They're still uneasy with him kissing his biceps and all that stuff. A lot of people just aren't used to Colin Kaepernick, and what I use to diffuse them is his playoff one-loss record, when in reality – He's won a lot of those games because of his defense, right? I mean, his defense is phenomenal, but I say to people things like, 
hey, Colin Kaepernick's 4-1 and one as a quarterback in the playoffs. That's remarkable for a young guy. Or Colin Kaepernick has won three road games as a playoff quarterback. That's remarkable. So here I am using that very you know, currency to kind of boast on my guy. Mm. Well, if that's the case, then Peyton Manning comes up on the very short end of that stick for the number of times he's been in the playoffs and the number of times he has lost. His record is not good, and Tom Brady's is significantly better. And when you want to talk just head-to-head, they've met 14 times, and Tom Brady's team has won 10 out of 14. Okay, so that's like, you know, we're almost at knockouts. In boxing, that's a, uh, that's a unanimous decision, right? That's not a split decision. And we're looking at now another chapter. I mean, can Brady do it to him again? I, w- I-, I would go into this game, guys, thinking that the way Bill Belichick coaches and the way Peyton Manning does get a little shaky under pressure like this, even though the Broncos are at home and even though the Broncos are favored, I think I'm going to take New England to win that game because of the Belichick factor and because I think Brady is a cooler customer. This Patriots team is a remarkable story. They've been stripped bare. Their roster, heck, guys, we were talking about the Aaron Hernandez murder case last summer. That's, they're missing him. They're missing Gronkowski. They're missing everybody on defense. And they blew out the Colts. They ran the ball. Bill Belichick shows you he's versatile. He ran the ball like crazy against Indianapolis. He could do that again this Sunday against Denver. So, yes, a lot of pressure on Peyton. He's If they lose this game, he's definitely going to hear it. He's definitely going to hear, ah, he's a bit of a bridesmaid, even though he does have one Super Bowl ring. Sort of analogous to Greg Norman, the golfer, who a lot of people think of as, eh, he could have done more, but he did win two majors. You Seems know? to me, though. A lot though, of guys would kill for the, Or was it three majors, right? Two British and a, yeah, and a, um, and a PGA, right? But a lot of people would say, oh, he should have done more. Well, that's Peyton Manning. Brian, we'll uh, wrap it up in a moment, but it does sound, you mentioned it there about the running game now employed by the New England Patriots. Has Tom Brady gotten a little lazy in his old age? He just hands, he's a bit old, a bit creaky. He just hands the ball to his running backs and steps well, back. Yeah, basically, he just does what Giselle tells him to do, is what he does. <laughs> uh, as judging by his uh, post-game outfits, you know, Giselle dresses him and all that. That's the thing about Brady. You know, in all seriousness, give him credit. You know, an ego like that and, and three championship rings like that and five Super Bowls, he could be saying to Bill Belichick, no, man, I want to throw this thing. I want the ball in my hands. I want, to, I want to be the guy. I'm the man. You know, these egos, they're very real. And guess what? He's saying, hey, if we need to run this LeGarrette Blunt, who was a good running back at Oregon in college, but had a checkered career and it was viewed as a character problem. So they got him for a song. They got him for a seventh-round draft pick. For Brady to say, yeah, let's put the ball in LeGarrette Blunt's hands is a credit to this guy's team attitude and his winning uh, behavior. I mean, it's just so hard for me to pick against him and Belichick uh, on Sunday. It would be a great triumph for Peyton Manning if he did it. He would. It would be such a, 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 a lion taming if he did it. You know what I mean? I beat Brady at age 37 after all my neck surgeries. I'm just going to go with New England, guys. So the Super Bowl will be New England Patriots versus... Wow. It's so... I, I believe me. So you guys know I'm, you know... I, I, I'm not taking this game lightly at all. I truly, truly am 50-50 on this thing. I have immense respect for Seattle's home field advantage and immense respect for Seattle's defense, guys. It is so hard to move the ball on their defense, and Kaepernick can get frustrated. And Russell Wilson, can he moves in the pocket so beautifully. He's a sleeker runner than, than Kaepernick. Kaepernick takes a while to get going, but when he does, he's unstoppable. Wilson can move on a dime, and he can break your heart. He will scramble out of trouble and find an open man because he threatens to run. He's so talented, 
He's not been playing well of late, though. I'm going to go with this because I just can't. I can't. I can't take Seattle, even though I see this game as a coin flip game. I'm going to say that there have been times throughout the history of the NFL, many, many, many times, guys, where great teams peak too soon. And I'm going to say the Seattle Seahawks peaked too soon this year. When they crushed New Orleans on Monday night 34-7 to and were sitting at like 12-1 and and everybody said they were the greatest team ever, they haven't played good since then. I'm going to say they peaked too soon and the 49ers are peaking at the right time. And I think the Seahawks must, in their heart of hearts, fear having to beat the 49ers again when the 49ers are so complete on offense, defense, and special team. 49ers by a field goal, boys. Brian, Brady versus the Niners. I hope your mother-in-law doesn't listen to second captain of the Irish Times, but it's a brave call. We'll leave it there. Thanks so much. Enjoy the games. You guys are the best. Have fun Sunday watching. To celebrate the launch of the new Mazda 3, we're inviting you to join Jerry Thornley, Liam Toland, and a panel of rugby experts as they discuss the upcoming RBS Six Nations. For your chance to attend this once-off Irish Times Six Nations event in association with Mazda 3, go to irishtimes.com. The all-new Mazda 3, proving everyone wrong. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now... Come here tonight, tonight, into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight, their team is better set up tonight, tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football, available on irishtimes.com, Second Captains, and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. Tonight, 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 tonight. Oh, it's going to be a little awkward, I think, Murph. For Brian, next time he heads Seattle away to visit the in-laws. Although he is married a long time, you know, he's he's got kids, he's met the in-laws presumably on a number of occasions. Yeah. It's not like that awkward moment where you go and meet ah, it's always the in-laws awkward. for the first time. It's always awkward. You're, Every you're single time sitting, you meet in You're always sitting there thinking, God, I wish I was at home. Or with my own parents. You know, either of those options are good. I just like to disassociate myself. From well, of course you would. Yeah, because yeah, well, that's fine. You too, Ken. I'm sure you'll leave me hanging here. That's yeah, fine. I, I mean, to me, they are my parents. Yeah, you love I your know. trips to Limerick, oh, don't you? God. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh. Do you call them mom and dad? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. Do you actually call? No. Yeah, I'm not believing that. Actually, Ken may well, that may well be true. Ken may do that. Those matches are on on Sunday night, aren't they? Both the Sunday night, six o'clock, and actually, yeah, six and nine. No, they're on a little later. Actually, I think, I think it's, it's eight, eight, eight and eleven thirty. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so you're going to have to stay really late to watch the second one. But. Well, really late. Have to. Well, I could do that standing on my head, on. We've been talking about the goings-on at the Australian Open in Melbourne, where the organisers were aware it was going to get very, very, very hot, but didn't seem to be doing a whole lot about it. Now, actually, I probably should mention before we talked to Matt Williams here that the, the, there were changes made to the protocol or to the actual system that they use for deciding when to call play off. Uh, essentially, it was a bit more simple up until this year, whereby you hit a certain temperature, you can't play anymore. Now, there's a slightly more complex formula involving uh, humidity and various other with wind and other issues like that. Now, whether or not that's the right system, I don't know. But one of the things that Sharapova was complaining about today was that she asked her trainer, do you know, can you tell when a match might be called off? And he was saying, I, I have no idea. That Nobody knows. It basically just comes down to the tournament referee now. So it's even hard for players to know what exactly, when they're going to be asked to play, when they might come off. Uh, and there just seems to be a lack of transparency on top of all the other issues. Let's talk to Matt Williams now. Matt, we don't want to get too dramatic about things, but Sharapova and her opponent today were looked at like they would have to keep playing that final set until one of them won it, 
uh, which mercifully one of them did eventually in Sharapova or just until somebody collapsed by the looks of things. Yeah, uh, look, and it's just wrong. Look, we're all up here, everyone in Australia scratches their heads and goes, what are they doing? Uh, and look, I don't know whether television likes the roof open so it looks better during the day. I don't know if Melbourne is that that uh, um, the Melbourne uh, Tourist Bureau that really sponsor the the a lot of the tournament put a lot of money into the tournament want to see Melbourne looking good in the sunshine. I don't know what it is, but certainly I don't believe that the care of the athlete is paramount in those decisions that are being made at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of other sports that go on here in Australia during the same time. Mm. We've got uh, 2020 cricket. Uh, we Our A-League, which is the football uh, competition, plays through summer here in Australia, so it avoids being in competition against rugby, rugby league and Aussie rules. But they're all played at night, played at 7.30. Like, I'm, I'm talking to you in my backyard here now. It's beautiful. You know, it's about 24, 25 degrees. It's lovely. So this type time of, of day to play sport, professional sport would be fine, but not at, at midday or two o'clock in the afternoon when the sun's at its zenith. You know, it's just not right. It's funny, the tournament doctor, I should say, Tim Wood was speaking on Monday and at this stage all the weather had been predicted. He said tennis as a sport is a low, relatively low risk for major heat problems compared to continuous running events. So you're more likely to get into trouble in these events uh, in a 10k road race than you are in a tennis match. As you can appreciate, the players, the time the ball is in play, total time for the match is relatively small. The amount of heat they produce from muscles exercising is relatively small in terms of what someone continuously exercising will do. I know this is a long quote, Matt, but it's probably worth putting out there. They sit down every five to ten minutes for every 90 seconds a change of ends, so there's a chance to lose some heat at that time. Tennis, by and large, is a low-risk sport. What do you think of that? Yeah, look, he's a doctor and I'm not, but, uh, you know, I... I'd hardly suggest, Owen, to uh, you and your listeners that I'm in the league of <laughs> of uh, an Australian home player, but, you know, all Australians play tennis, and we call it hit and giggle. You go and have a hit, and you're playing in, in the in the middle of the day. You know, it's, it's very, very hot, and, and we're measuring the temperature at 45 degrees. That's the air temperature. It's not the temperature in the direct sunlight. So if you put a thermometer out on centre court, it's going to be up in the mid-50s. You know, this is exceptional stuff. Yeah. This isn't. This isn't. You know what happens every day in every tournament around the world. I, I don't. I, I'm not questioning the um, professionalism of of the physician, and and obviously what he's saying is correct. You do sit down, you do have these breaks, but it's an, it, it is an extraordinary time. What's occurring in the heat uh, across uh, southern Australia at the moment is exceptional, and I think there needs to be. Uh, uh, a lot more care taken for the athletes. And, and look, the athletes themselves are taking it. Not only that, Owen, um, you know, you've got Andy Murray that, that comes from, from Scotland, mm. you, you know, uh, the people from the Northern Hemisphere that are not used to this. We, we, it's, like, it's like being in Ireland, you know. You, you, you get used to, to um, January and February in the cold and how you dress and how you handle it. You, you get used to that, just like you get used to the, the heat here in Australia. You get acclimatised. But these people aren't necessarily acclimatised. They come in, they fly in, they might be here for two or three weeks. And to hit 45 degrees for anyone and then expect to perform as an athlete in and, and what we don't want, Owen, in all of this, let's just remember it's not about winning or losing. You don't want a tragedy. You don't want yeah. someone to keel over and someone to, to suffer something that, that you know, for the sake of a, a game, 
is uh, it, it should be avoidable. And I, I, as I said to you, there's a lot of us around here, guys I talk to that are deal with professional sport all the time. We're all saying the same thing and asking the exact same questions that you've asked. Why isn't that roof closed? Why haven't they got the air conditioning on? Why aren't they starting earlier in the morning and maybe having a break in the middle? Of the day? Why isn't it a, 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 an 8 a.m. start? Why don't they play 8 till 12 then, then have a break from, from 12 till 5 in the afternoon during the heat of the day? You know, all these sort of issues that could be managed. And the answer we all come up with, it's something to do with the commercial side of uh, of the tournament. Well, what's slightly jarring for me, you, you alluded to it there, Matt, just the, uh, the fact that Australians are obviously more acclimatised to the heat. But even with that, as you say, this is exceptional heat we're talking about. And I remember being in Australia and being quite struck by the the sort of knowledge that Australian people had of the sun, of the dangers of that, of heat. And this is built up over, uh, I guess, over many years of living in it. So even Australians who are acclimatised to it are, are, are quite wary in a lot of ways of what the sun can do. That makes it almost all the more... Uh, and I, I guess, as you're saying, that, that most Australian people are therefore asking these questions as to why this tournament is happening as it is. Yeah, uh, it's the, the Australians are asking the same questions. And look, I think something's going to happen at the end of this. Uh, I, I certainly hope there's no injury to any of the athletes. But if you if if you come to Australia, uh, you know, and our visitors, especially Irish visitors, um, uh, when they come out, you know, the first thing I say is, look, the Australian sun is different to going to France. It's different to Portugal. You know, you'll fry in 20 minutes. You just got to look after yourself. Um, and you know, there's a massive rate of melanoma here in Australia. I'm, I'm Irish genetics, you know. I, your genetics travel with you. Just, you know, my Irish genetics means now I have to go to the skin specialist every six months and I get uh, potential melanomas burn off uh, regularly, and, and as many of us do, because you, as a, as a person that was involved with sport, I was surfing, I was playing cricket, I was playing basketball, rugby, all these things, you're out in the sun. And uh, we got burnt when we were kids, and we pay a very, very high price for that now in in later life. But not only that, you know, it's quite well known that they're putting out warnings for people, just general day-to-day living. There are warnings going out on our uh, the equivalent uh, of RTE, the ABC in Australia, warning people saying, "Listen, you know, make sure they're hydrated. Check on older people. This is exceptional times." But uh, we leave the roof open and ask, ask our great tennis players to run around for three and four hours and then do it again tomorrow and then the day after and the day after that. You know, it's, it's bloody madness, mate. You know, it really is. You know, when we were kids, we, we, uh, the rugby season would, would be – you'd be playing trials in the rugby season um, in late February – and early March, which is still summer out here. And we used to always say, look, there's going to be some something go wrong here. Something's going to go very, very wrong here at some stage. And, of course, now we have the ability to play at night, which I'd never had with it. I didn't have the lights. But it, it, it's been there for a long time, and we're learning more about it. But, therefore, more is the pity. We know the answers now. When I was a kid, we didn't know about melanomas. We know about it now. You wear shirts, you put on sunscreen, you put on hats. And, and but we didn't know that back when I was a kid. We know the problems with the sun now, but we're still exposing these world class athletes to it, and they're complaining, and so they should. It's it's uh, simply wrong. Matt, uh, it's great stuff. Listen, thanks so much for talking to us. No worries, Alan. Great to talk to you, mate. I feel it's important that, that actually just after that, having listened to Matt there, that we explain that just to get the full kind of Australian feel for that interview, that mm-hmm. we did actually ask him to go to Aluru Ayers Rock and just stand there in the midst of all the crickets, basically out in the outback, mm. just to really get a feel for the country that we're visiting he was up by at, the media. He was up on top audio. of a tree there, just trying to stay away from a few crocodiles, circling dangerously below. Yeah, he had one of those cork hats on, the whole <laughs> lot. The whole nine yards. He's, he's very accommodating like that, man. Coming up at six o'clock tonight.
that's yeah <laughs> they have asked for that really well you can laugh I'm the walk up I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that I want to be like me what are you talking about? What have you done? I'd say to you, face, I'll say it to you now. What are you doing down here, you showing me, man? Ken. Well, lock on on on. Transfer to Looks like he's moving. Southampton are having a meltdown. And there's a big kind of scandal going on in Spain over Neymar going to Barcelona, which we're going to be talking about. Uh, it's it's quite interesting that the two big stars at Barcelona have both been embroiled in massive financial scandals in the last uh, few months, and both of them are saying almost exactly the same thing. Oh, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't know anything about any of that. You know, I don't actually, uh, I don't, I don't know anything about the money side of this. I'm here to play football. Yeah, it might, it's actually my dad who looks after that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, about Neymar and Messi's dad. Uh, apparently, well, they they've more or less said the same thing. Ah, I don't I don't look after any of this. You know, I hire people to look after that mm. kind of stuff for us. Have are you talking about the big transfer news of the last twenty four hours or so? Shawnee O'Brien, he's staying at Leinster. He's just signed an RF, RFU contract. Well, Ken. it's not transfer news. Well, it's, it's quite the opposite. It could not be further of from transfer, it's transfer news. news. It's like a new signing, Murph, but it's yeah. not. It's like keeping the player you have. But no, no. When someone returns from a long injury, that's like a new signing. No, it is great, Sean O'Brien. Staying absolutely that's um, good news. Yeah. It is. I mean, you know, obviously, you're a big fan of his work, Ken. Yeah, uh, the Tullo Tank. <laughs> that's that's good. I'm not going to push you for any more. You know, my sister lives in Tullo, and yep. uh, they revere Sean O'Brien down there. Well, why wouldn't they? I mean, he's brilliant, and we he revere, loves we revere him everywhere in Ireland. But uh, and he looks yeah. Tullo in particular. Murph, don't you see? The people from Carlo Town, I'm sure, are trying to get a piece of Sean O'Brien, but he's a Tullo no. tank, not a Carlo tank. No, he's a Tullo tank. That's that's it. It wouldn't work as well if it was Carlo. That Ken, I said coming up at six o'clock tonight, but we'll push. That sounds so good. That football show, we'll get it out well. I guarantee we'll have that out long before six o'clock. Okay, no, get it out for people before before then. Well, I'll, I'll uh, just check with Simon. Yeah, Simon guarantees that as well. All right, we're going to talk about now one of the most iconic names in sporting history, really. And uh, the reason this is in our mind is because one of the gold medals, in fact, the only known surviving gold medal, one of the four that was won by uh, Jesse Owens at the Olympics in 1936 in Germany, has been sold at auction. This was late last year for almost one and a half million dollars. This, of course, uh, Jesse Owens being the man who exploded the myth of Hitler's Aryan race. But there's a lot more to his story than that. And we're joined now by Jeremy Schapp, author of Triumph, the untold story of Jesse Owens and Hitler's Olympics to talk a little bit about this and put it in some sort of context. I suppose it's a bit crass, maybe, Jeremy, to value somebody's contribution to life and to sport by just uh, putting a number on it, like $1.46 million. But that is a lot of money at the same time. Is it an indication of the strength of Owens' legacy, do you think? Well, it is, I think, a fair indication of the significance of Jesse Owens' achievements in 1936 at the Berlin Games. Um, it, it, It happens to be... Well, up until that point, no one seemed to know where any of the four gold medals were. And now that's the only one that seems to have been proven uh, to have been one of the genuine articles that he gave to uh, the American film star Bill Robinson, better known as Bojangles. Um, But, you know, if you you look at it, Owen, and you think back on the history of the modern games dating to 1896 in Athens, and now we're talking about almost 120 years of history, if you were to just say... Olympics to someone and ask them first athlete who pops to mind. 78 years 
after Jesse Owens won those four gold medals, I, I, I think I may be a little bit biased here. He's the name that most people would immediately associate with Olympic history. Um, because of what he achieved, uh, the four victories were spectacular enough. You know, in the 100-meter dash, 200-meter dash, uh, the 400-meter relay, and the broad jump, now known as the long jump. But to, to have done it against that backdrop in a country in which he was officially considered something less than a human being, a full-fledged human being, uh, at a time um, when when there was so much turmoil and so much uncertainty about where the world was headed, uh, I think makes his his triumphs um, unique, and uh, they are still appreciated. The subtitle of your book, I mentioned it, The Untold Story of Jesse Owens and Hitler's Olympics. What, what part of his story do you think was untold until you wrote this book a few years back? Well... Uh, you know, untold is one of those words that we put in the titles of books to sell more. Uh, <laughs> but I, th- I think there was legitimately a lot uh, that was untold in the sense that no one had really considered it in a long time and presented the story um, as, well, I guess, as accurately is probably the best word to use. Um, there are a lot of myths, big myths about Jesse Owens in Berlin. One has to do with the snub by Adolf Hitler. You know, I think most people um, believe for a long time that Jesse Owens was snubbed by Adolf Hitler, that he chose to like walk out of the stadium rather than shake hands with Owens or congratulate him. But if you go back and you look at the history, as I did uh, researching and writing the book, that's um, a gross oversimplification of what happened. So I try to clarify that. The other thing in terms of untold regarding the Olympics, um, most significantly was Jesse's uh, role in the American 400-meter relay team, the 4x100-meter relay team. Uh, and, and for American audiences anyway, people who are schooled in the history of sport, the story that had often been told was that Jesse Owens volunteering, offering, I should say, his spot on the team to either of the two Jewish runners who had been kicked off the team in a meeting just before the the event began, Sam Stoller and Marty Glickman. Again, go back and look at that carefully. The real story is is actually much different. And then in terms of just Jesse's big story, uh, there had never really been um, a, a full-length book treatment of, of his life up to and including the Olympics. Um, and and, you know, there are a lot of important things that have been forgotten over the years. Uh, one of them is, you know, the great rivalry that he had with Ulysses Peacock, the tremendous competitor from Temple University in Philadelphia, uh, who was a guy who, who consistently defeated Owens in the year leading up to the games, but was injured uh, during the run-up to the games and couldn't compete. So, you know, by the time Jesse got to the Olympics, the, the guy who was going to give him the most trouble potentially was not able to compete, and he was one of his fellow African-American competitors. Well, so th- those are some of the things that uh, are covered in the book that, you know, I, as someone who considers himself uh, a sports historian, wasn't really familiar with until I delved deeper into it. Yeah, and there's also the aftermath and what happened. I always find this fascinating. I remember we interviewed uh, John Carlos a number of years back, 
about the uh, his role in the Black Power salute at the Mexico Games. And the most fascinating part of that interview was really how difficult life was for a long time for him afterwards. Now, it wasn't quite the same maybe for Jesse Owens, but you mentioned the snub there. There's a, one of the famous Jesse Owens quotes is, Hitler didn't snub me. It was FDR, as in President Roosevelt, who snubbed me. The president didn't even send me a telegram. Four Olympic gold medals in Nazi Germany, I guess, Jeremy, didn't guarantee an easy life for an African-American in the U.S. at that time? No, by no means whatsoever. I mean, you know, Jesse came back and struggled. And remember, this is, these are the darkest hours of the Depression, pretty much, 1936. I mean, you could argue like 34, 35, but we're still in the, the midst of, you know, the global Depression. And, and times were tough all around. Now, make no mistake, Jesse Owens was able to capitalize on his celebrity to the extent that he was able to afford a decent lifestyle and to provide for his family, but nothing like the riches that he expected going over there and winning four gold medals and the riches that people promised him, which did not materialize. Um, but there were opportunities, you know, uh, tremendous opportunities afforded to many of his white teammates who who, who did not achieve nearly what he achieved in Berlin. And, and, you know, and then there's simple fact that America was a segregated society at that point when he came back and, you know, they were setting him in New York and there was going to be a parade for him. Uh, you know, he couldn't go through the front doors of the hotel where he was staying. He had to go through the service entrance and there were hotels in which he couldn't stay at all. Uh, not just in the South, but uh, throughout the American North as well. Um, one of his teammates, who happened to be the older brother of Jackie Robinson, the first black baseball player of the 20th century in the major leagues, uh, his older brother, Mac Robinson, finished second to Joey in the, uh, to Joey, I'm sorry, uh, to Jesse in the, um, 200 meter dash. And he came back and he, he couldn't find a job, period, other than working as, um, a janitor at a community college in Pasadena which is outside Los Angeles. Jeremy, how did the, ultimately when things started happening with regards to the civil rights movement a number of years later, where did Jesse Owens at that point figure in, 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 that, in that time in America? Well, you, you see, by the time, well, there are a few different ways you can look at it. Jesse Owens was a gradualist in his approach. The world in which he was born, uh, was a place that was very hostile to uh, black Americans. Uh, so many rights were denied them. So many privileges were denied them. Uh, it was a dangerous place. He, he grew up, he was a kid during the 1920s, uh, you know, when the Ku Klux Klan was at the height of its power, when uh, lynchings were taking place all over the South, where he was born. He moved to the industrial north, uh, to Cleveland, uh, when he was in grade school. Um, and over his lifetime, by the 1950s, things had gotten better. Um, they weren't great, but they'd gotten better. And, and he'd seen things get better as slowly American society had come to accept African Americans uh, to a greater extent than they had when he was growing up. And he thought that they would continue to get better. And people like him and his good friend Joe Lewis and Jackie Robinson were affecting change. And he thought people who were more radicalized, people like Tommy Smith and John Carlos, people like Harry Edwards, uh, who led the black power movement among athletes, 
heading into the Mexico City games, uh, were dangerous. And he thought they were going to set the black cause back. So he campaigned, as did Jackie Robinson, uh, you know, he, he, for Republicans. Uh, and of course, the dynamics were very different between the parties back then. The Democrats were the party of the South. But he, he campaigned for Richard Nixon in 1960 rather than John F. Kennedy, mm. uh, who is a different kind of Democrat in some ways. Um, so he, he, he thought that all the gains that had been made in his lifetime, you could argue that they were small gains, would be reversed by radical blacks, if you will, such as Muhammad Ali and the Olympians in 1968. But, but after 1968, when he was widely criticized for not being more supportive of the black power movement, he, he reconsidered his position, uh, and he embraced a more uh, an agenda that that was less patient with change. It's an incredible dynamic at that time. The way you explain it, there, that you have these great figures like Muhammad Ali, for example, uh, and then Jesse Owens. It, it, it's kind of easy enough to paint everyone with the same brush that there was just this, uh, you know, this gradual change in America over many years, and everybody was pulling in the same direction. But there were a lot more nuances to, to it than that by the same sure. things. Yeah. Sure. In 1936, you know, Jesse comes back, and he and Joe Lewis both campaigned for Alf Land and against Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, you know, the architect of the New Deal, uh, you know, who, whose social policies did so much to help um, Americans who were part of an underclass, whether they were black or white. Uh, but Jesse worked for Alf Land, and remember, you have to remember at this time we're only. 70 years removed from slavery and there were 1936 was the first time that more blacks voted democrat than republican in the u.s Mm. obviously republicans were the party of lincoln uh they were the party of the north the democrats were the party of the south all that didn't start to change until 1936 and jesse was a little bit behind the curve as was joe lewis and a lot of other people by the time he passed away in 1980, do you think that he was, that Jesse Owens was uh, comfortable? Was he at peace with himself, his achievements, his legacy, his, his place in history? Um, because there, as you say, we haven't even mentioned the famous stories of him at one point being hard up enough that he felt he had to, or he ended up uh, involved in exhibition races against horses and all these, all this kind of um, rather demeaning sounding stuff. Uh, but by, by the time yeah. he died in 1980, how did he view his own life? You know, by the time Jesse Owens died in 1980, the world had changed so much that he was he was this um, indisputable icon. He was on the Mount Rushmore of American sports. He had spent a quarter century. You know, things had changed in the media. Uh, aftermath of his victories. You know, it, it was a different world. It was the Depression. Uh, it was hard for him to find his way. He did race the horse in Havana, Julio McCall, but by the way, he did it for $10,000 in the middle of the Depression, right. which was about, I don't know, 300 times the average annual salary of an American at that point. Yeah, we might so, all we, we might all raise a horse for that kind of cash, I suppose, Jeremy. Exactly. Um, I, I gladly. Um, <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I, I should say, though, last quarter century of his life, and he didn't have a long life, died in 66, he was respected in the way that he deserved to be respected. He, he 
he was, um, you know, a professional. Um, he, he was a, he, just being Jesse Owens was his profession is what I'm trying to say. Right. And he made speeches and he was honored wherever he went and he was a living icon and, and he deserved that for the things that he did for this country, um, for the things that he did for the world, uh, for his achievements, for his dignity, for his, um, and for the role that he played in helping further the cause of African-Americans. Jeremy, it's been great talking to you. The book is called Triumph, as I mentioned. We've been reading in the last little while that there may be a movie in production with Disney. Is that, can you shed any light on yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, that, that just happened re- recently. Oh, Disney uh, optioned the book and they've got some very talented people uh, working on it. Uh, great director uh, Antoine Fuqua and David Seidler, the screenwriter. So my fingers are crossed. Sounds good. Listen, it's called Triumph, the untold story of Jesse Owens and Hitler's Olympics. It will, it will be a big movie, so we urge people to get the book in the meantime. It's been great talking to you. Jeremy Schaap, thank you. Oh, and a pleasure. Brilliant stuff from Jeremy there. Just to go back on one of the points that he made, I know we glossed over it a little bit, but I, I mainly wanted to focus on the aftermath and what became of Jesse Owens after the Olympic Games. But he did mention that the Hitler snub, this is one of the things that I had assumed had happened. Uh, certainly that's the, the narrative that there has been over the years that he that Jesse Owens won these medals Hitler was supposed to shake his hands as he did with everybody else but refused to shake Jesse Mm. Owens' hand it didn't happen like that at all Yeah, it's a little more complicated than that Uh, the day before Jesse Owens won the first of his gold medals a guy called Cornelius Johnson who was also an African-American athlete won the high jump and uh, it was was actually him who was snubbed if anyone was snubbed but it's, it's actually a lot more complicated than sort of just a simple snubbing because Hitler had been there on the first day and had shaken the hands and warmly congratulated a couple of the German athletes who had, Germany had started very, very well uh, in, the, in the track and field uh, events. But as the day went on and on and on and later and later, the, uh, it was running very, very late. And Hitler had left the stadium before Cornelius Johnson had uh, won his gold medal. He was the first African-American to win um, a gold medal. And uh, Hitler had left the stadium, it was well after 5pm, and People thought that he had, he may have snubbed Cornelius Johnson, but he no one was quite sure that mm. uh, the, he, the, he the reason for Hitler's leaving, right, yeah. whether it was the fact that he had run late or the fact that he was an African American. So he got a little bit of heat about uh, about snubbing <laughs> that, Cornelius that, Johnson. Hitler got a little bit of heat about yeah. snubbing an athlete, and uh, probably some more serious issues <laughs> yeah. at the time that and he should have been getting heat. As for. a result, uh, as a result, he uh, he didn't then con- uh, personally congratulate anyone. So after there was, that. Yeah, so oh, okay. after that incident, he didn't congratulate, yeah, congratulate any of the gold medal. But apparently, when he saw Jesse Owens, he warmly waved at Owens and Owens waved back at him. So it was, you know, right, so that's, okay. that's kind of the, the, the ground. Sort of, and where the snub story came from then was, obviously that was 1936. Mm-hmm. So people maybe weren't fully aware of what Hitler had been doing. But after the war, obviously... People were 100% aware. Yeah. It was, I mean, it wasn't as though... It was secret. It was a set of laws passed through the parliament. Oh yeah, no, no. Year. If if people were looking for that information, well, I mean, then they people, could find if it. People picked up a newspaper. If they picked up the Daily, Daily Mail, if they picked up the Daily Mail, what about the Daily Mail? Quite a few people read the Daily Mail. They would have uh, known that he had, you know, put in all these had had enshrined racist laws in the mm. in the sort of laws of the land. So. It, in any case, after the, after the war. Uh, the Hitler was obviously a, a, a different figure, a, a more yeah. obviously uh, evil figure in the eyes of the entire world. Yeah, and Jesse Owens would would then have been asked quite a bit about, 
you know, 36, Hitler snubbed you. And rather than go against the grain of oh, the story... No, he wasn't, yeah, he wasn't that bad to me. But it was easier just to say, yes, he snubbed me. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of how the story... Yeah, you're not going to say, well, actually, you know, Hitler you know, Hitler not- waved very nicely yeah. at me. <laughs> you know, I didn't think he was that bad. Yeah. Although I suppose, how can you really tell yeah. when you see somebody like that in a yeah. stadium at a distance of, of 30, 40 metres? What, you know, whether, whether or not they've got a good heart. Mm. Can't you know, be sure. I think Hitler was pro- probably very bored by sport. Mm. Just like, kind of, why are we, you know, why are we watching? Many this? of the dictators were, weren't they? I know Mussolini used sport, but I, don't I think Mussolini think, was well, don't Mussolini liked sport oh, in the he? in yeah, certainly in the rich man way of of horse riding, powerboat oh, right. racing, you know that Stalin. that that type of stuff. Uh, I don't think would have been much oh, into massive. sport. No, um, busy man, I suppose also. Yeah, a serious man in some ways. I can imagine Hitler looking down at the, you know, the Olympians, thinking these people have no idea what happened in the trenches, you know. And that, and and it's it's a, it's a sort of a joyless way to look at the, at the world. You got to be able to suspend disbelief from time to time. Ken, I know you're not going to rest easy without knowing just where the Jesse Owens Medal now lies in the pantheon of valuable sporting memorabilia. A long way down by the sound of it. No, not far down at all. Really, right up near sporting the sporting memorabilia is is just pretty. Cheap trash by by comparison, for instance, great art. Number one, the most expensive ever piece of sports memorabilia, according to the most recent study that I've read on this subject, mm. is Babe Ru- a Babe Ruth jersey, the first one, the earliest known Yankees jersey that Babe Ruth wore around 1920. Almost four and a half million dollars was paid for that. Number two, James Naismith founding rules of basketball, basketball, yeah. 1891. That was only a few thousand less than the, the Babe Ruth jersey. Mark McGuire's 70th home run ball, 1998. Now a tainted ball. I don't know if the owner of that ball put an asterisk on it, yeah. seeing as Mark McGuire did admit to steroid use after that. But that's there at three million. Uh, that was the record amount of home runs for a season. A baseball card. This is a lesson to anybody who has any sort of little bits and bobs, like there's any Panini stickers, keep them because they might become very valuable. Honus Wagner's 1909 baseball card, $2.8 million. Do you know what it came with initially? And the reason it's so valuable, there's only a few of them there because he stopped the production of them, this baseball player. Why? They came with packets of cigarettes. Right. And I know there's a narrative that back then nobody knew about the dangers of cigarettes, but Wagner didn't want whatever cigarettes were about at that time, didn't want it associated with him and kids and that kind of crap. Oh, so he said, stop yeah. making these. He only had a few of them. That's why that one that survives is worth $2.8 million. And number five, this is now getting bumped out by Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens moves in at five ahead of the first football rule book belonging to Sheffield FC around 1859. Really? Yeah, $1.4 million. Pretty boring way to wrap up the show. And you don't... Uh, well, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's a great message to send. I did a lot of research shows, on this earlier. It is interesting how, how low those prices are, you know, considering the ridiculous prices that are paid for uh, paintings and so on. You can't count Fernando Torres or Kaka as examples of sporting <laughs> memorabilia because Ar- artifacts. That, because then you'd suddenly be you'd be playing in the big leagues again. You'd be up there with uh, Francis Bacon and uh, Castle Van Gogh and all that. Mm. If if you were able to include them, but if not, then I suppose uh, they'll do. It's just, it just shows that we're still uh, pretty much bottom feeders here. I hope you enjoyed in the this show. Room and this industry. We have been. <laughs> today to San Francisco, we've been to New York and we've been to Sydney. And just to say, Murph, if anybody wants Again, to bring us in you know, body to those places as opposed to just through Skype lines listen, and so We've forth. liked what we've heard today. You know, yeah, everyone you know, seems very happy. Delighted uh, to be we, where they are. We've a handle at Second Captains. Yeah. We've, uh, we've got a Facebook there. Facebook.com yeah. forward slash Second Captains. There's an email address secondcaptains uh, at irishtimes.com It's so easy to contact us. It's nearly a sin that you don't. It's amazing because if you have the, you know, we speak English, device. everybody over in those countries speak English. Oh, just it's just a great fit. 
Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Ud. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thanks Ken. Alan. Thanks, Kira. Thanks for listening. Take care. We'll chat to you during Second Captain's Football later on. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.